Our guest this week then is our latest addition to the Erskine Veterans Charity as one of our ambassadors. And he's uh, going to be talking to us about some of his work so far in his life and also uh, a little look ahead to what's coming up for him because he's... Uh, he, he is actually heading out of this world. He is uh, going to space, but we'll speak to him about that very soon. My great pleasure to welcome to Erskine Veterans Radio, Trevor Beatty. Hello, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and, and thanks for, for joining us, and congratulations on becoming our latest Erskine ambassador. Tell us a little bit about yourself then, because as I've been mentioning, that you're an, an ad man turned movie maker and a big supporter of, of all things to do with, with the armed forces, and... I know that, of course, you're heading to space, but let's go back to the let's go back to the beginning of all that first. When we say you're an ad man, you you are one of the most successful advertising creatives of the last sort of twenty twenty five years or so, and have worked on some massive campaigns. What would people know you for? To paraphrase The Simpsons, you may know me from certain things as uh, <laughs> French Connection, um, FC UK for French Connection, uh, which caused a minor stir and a flutter. Um, and the Hello Boys campaign for Wonderbra, um, which kind of haunts me to this day, strangely. Um, and uh, and also uh, did a lot of work for New Labour. Um, you may have remembered uh, William Haig wearing Margaret Thatcher's hair on a particular poster. Um, so my involvement in politics was, was quite strong in the 90s as well. Um, and it was nice to be a part of that. There was a genuine um, cultural movement going on, I think, in, in Britain at the time. And advertising was playing a big part in it. So it's nice to be um, in the middle of all that, really. Good fun. Big working for a living, you know. And you mentioned there some of those works maybe give you nightmares and particularly big campaigns for like um, the Wonderbra thing, which was on billboards right across the country and on TV ads right across the country, if not further afield. And um, and also the the French Connection thing as well, which I know also made the headlines at the time, and there was a bit of uproar all all about it. When when you're sitting down and, and creating these things, clearly you're wanting to create a stir. But do you know the impact that you might be causing? Well, one, it was interesting because one led to the other. In that, um, Wonderbra was a was a big success for a few years, and then I was contacted by a fellow called Stephen Marks, who uh, is the um, chairman and CEO of French Connection, and um, I wasn't really aware of French Connection, but his brief to me was, um, "Can you do a Wonderbra for French Connection?" Which is which is an interesting question in itself because I didn't know whether he meant make the brand more famous or make it controversial or <laughs> increase the share price or increase the sales. It come in a lot of things, um, and as it turned out, you know, he said, "I want to be the most talked about um, fashion chain on the high street," which is. Um, which is the best brief you're going to get, really. Um, so with that single-minded approach, and he was very single-minded about what they wanted, um, SUK was, was an answer that was staring us in the face, really. It's just that no one had, like a lot of ideas, I suppose, no one had picked it up. They, they are French Connection United Kingdom, and there's the answer staring you in the face. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was born out of that, but French Connection was born of Underbra, strangely. How one thing leads to another. And a client will look at what the success you've had in one project and say, okay, what's the equivalent of that acclaim and success for my brand? And that's how French Connection came about. It was a, it was a bit of a, it was fun, but it was a bit of a kind of um, bucking bronco of a ride, you know. 
uh, we were blamed for the downfall of Western civilization by the Daily Mail, which is <laughs> probably probably true. Actually, I think it prob- probably was looking back on it responsible for the downfall. Yeah, so it was an exciting and silly time. Let's let's talk about Erskine then, because uh, that's what we're here to talk about. Um, how did you get to know about Erskine? What's your what's your background with the Erskine Veterans Charity? It it, it comes from um, from the man Ian Cumming, and mm. uh, you know he's he, Ian is an extraordinary man. I've known him for over ten years now, and he, he's helped out a lot with with my foundation, and um, I knew him because I have this kind of odd military connection, even though no military connection in my family, but my family's always had a huge respect for the military and also a, a kind of obsession with aviation. So I'm a real aviation geek. Um, and through that, uh, and the RAF, I got to know and meet Ian, um, who's just one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. You know, he's a, he's a genuine bona fide hero uh, and completely, as you would probably expect, completely self-effacing very uh, kind man, you know, and um, extraordinary character. Um, and, you know, we've had a few capers together uh, by the RAF, the goodwill of the RAF, and um, I've always tried to help out um, the RAF and, and to extend the MOD where I can. Um, because I, I think coming from me, it comes from an odd angle and people are more likely to listen to some long-eared git of a civvy speaking in defence of the military than than the military itself, you know. So it makes people sit up and take notice, I think. And I think that was part of Ian's master plan. Um, <laughs> and, it, uh, you know, and, and, and he left the, left the military and, you know, moved so naturally into the, into the charity sector because that's where his heart is, you know, and he's been a success at that. And so when he moved to Erskine, I knew it would, I knew it would be good news for Erskine. So as soon as he moved there, I wanted to get involved and I was willing to get involved for me to be um, in this position, to, to, be, to be offered the chance of being a better, I'll, I'll leap at it, you know. Um, and I can't wait to come up at some point and visit and, uh, and see for myself the extent of what's going on. It's going on. It is a fantastic place and I was looking enough to have the, the full tour um, a month or so ago and I know that you'll have a, a fantastic experience when you do come it is it is just a wonderful place the minute that you walk in through the door and um, I know that you'll be hugely welcomed when you arrive and hopefully that things will be a little bit more open than perhaps um, you know they, they have been fingers crossed as, as we move through time um, whilst you're supporting the Erskine Veterans Charity you, you do have your own foundation as well your own charitable foundation what inspired you to set that up and, and what are you doing with that? What, what happened was, well, we lost our mum, and um, I'd, I lost my dad when I was 21, and uh, so a very long time ago. And then, so my mum carried on and, and lived to a, a grand old age, so kind of had two lives, really. Uh, and there's a lot of us in our family, and when uh, we lost our mum, it changes everything. You, it doesn't, I don't care what age you are. When both your parents have gone, you become an orphan. Um, however big and ugly and old you are, you're an orphan. And it, it has a psychological effect on you. And I was very affected by that. And I wanted to uh, make some good come out of it and take the learnings that they'd given me over 
so many decades, uh, take their values, Jack and Ada's values, and put them back out and do some good. And uh, so I spent about a, a year really um, studying what they meant to me and, and my family, my brothers and sisters, studying what they meant and and how we could translate that to help others the way that they'd help us. It was that simple. Um, at the time, I didn't know the difference between a charity and a charitable foundation. Uh, I bloody well do now, <laughs> you know. And um, I, I teamed up with a girl called, called Alex, and Alex was brilliant. Alex knew knew all about it and uh, taught me that difference. And um, and so we launched it in 2011 uh, because I already had a lot of charitable projects that I was working with, uh, as with normally veterans, and my my mum's final wish was that I would look after the old boys, as she said, you know, look after the normally veterans. Um, and so I vowed after that that I always would. Um, and so one of the initial projects for our foundation was to make sure that we took the boys and and, and over ladies, as they call them, overlords and over ladies, you know, back to Normandy every year. Uh, and uh, that was our first commitment. And then it grew from there. Um, where we've helped out many charities now. Um, and that's where it came from. And I'm and, uh, uh, using, you know, what I'd learned in advertising to market what we're doing and to, as you said, to express in simple terms um, what it is our foundation does. So the first thing to do was to write a line, I saw was to write a line which summed up what it is that we do. And, and our line is knowing that someone is fighting your corner is half the battle won. Uh, which again, even accidentally, has military tones to it. But knowing that we're on your side, you know, helps you sleep nights. And that's what we're about. Uh, we've given away, we've raised and given away a hell of a lot of money over the last decade and uh, continue to do so. Um, and out of that, we've had individual projects um, like Bank of Mum and Dad. So a set up an interest-free um, loan system called Bank of Mum and Dad, where if you like, Jack and Ada would give you a loan of 500 quid and uh, you pay back 500 quid. Yeah, there's no checks, there's no um, credit checks, there's no um, interest, there's no charges, you just pay it back. And as soon as you pay it back, we give it somewhere else. Um, and then more recently during during COVID, we set up what I call tons of help of Jack and Ada, which is just a 100 quid cash grant. We give away 100 quid cash to people. Um, to pay for their shopping, to help with their bills, to help with their uh, energy bills, especially, and do that. And so, in the end, we we'd, we'd given away, uh, I think, nearly two hundred tons, you know, uh, two hundred units of of hundred pounds each, with it over the last um, two years, and it's amazing. And people have so, you know, money comes in at one end and we give it out at the other. So people give us donations. We turn it into £100 sums. People contact us in need. We assess their suitability and we give them 100 quid. No questions asked, we just give them 100 quid. And as long as we've still got money in the kitty, we'll give it away. And then when the kitty goes low, either I'll put more money in or we'll uh, you know, raise more funds to go into that kitty and give it away in sums again. And we'll be doing that tons of help at Christmas, so we'll be reigniting that again at Christmas. So that's the, that's the story of the foundation. It's the most important thing I've ever done in my life, you know. 
and hugely rewarding for you personally as well to be in that position to give and and change people's lives in in in, in no small way probably for whilst it might be a relatively small amount of money that can make a, a big difference to, to them personally at that time yeah yeah because i'm i'm um you know I, I, i'm not about to go and run a marathon i don't do that but you know, i can badger people to match the amount of money i put in if i say okay well i'm putting ten thousand quid in the kitty can you also give me between you ten thousand quid thank you very much and now i'm going to give it away that's it i don't have to run a marathon or shave my head or sit in a bath of beans i'm just going to say you give me money and i'll give it away to people who need it okay that's the deal mm. um and if someone ever says well what do i get out of that trip i'll say well you get to sleep nights you mm. get to sleep nights knowing you did a good thing that's all that's it i don't have to run a marathon you give me money i'll give it to someone who needs it that's it um i'm cutting out the middleman of the uh the doing something silly for money so you can give it to someone else. Don't do the silly thing. You give them the money and I'll give it to someone else. That's how it works. It's back to your point of how yeah, sometimes it. the brutally simple is the way to, to, to do things, you know. <laughs> and much better for your knees as well. <laughs> That's right, yes. And for, and for my reputation of being a lazy git, yeah. <laughs> The big question, Trevor, you are our first guest who is going to be due to be travelling to space. How's this come about? What's your mission to space about and how's this happening? I love being asked that question because um, I love being able to say, yes, Ian, I'm going to space next year. We've got uh, two more test flights to go this year um, and then we'll be off up there early next year. And I've waited all my life so I can wait a bit long. I won't say I can't wait because I can wait. Um, but it'll be the most extraordinary experience of my life. The, the only thing, if it hadn't been for COVID, I would have gone to space by now. The, the irony being um, is that it's the travel ban to the States. I've got a perfectly functioning rocket ship which could take me to space now, um, but I don't have a functioning Virgin Atlantic Airbus to take me to New Mexico to go. <laughs> so who'd have ever thought that the airplane would have been the problem? You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's the weirdest, the weirdest of dilemmas. Um, so I, uh, Richard invited me to go to his test flight. I would have been on that, uh, on the runway there in New Mexico. But by the time the invite, they'd got the, the date together and the invite together, uh, I'd have been in quarantine. So I could have flown to New Mexico, flown to America, but I would have had to spend 10 days in a travel tavern outside New Mexico <laughs> in quarantine. I'd have missed the, the flight anyway. So um, it frustrating me. I had to watch it on Sky News like everybody else. You know. And have you heard from any of those that went up on that, that first flight then, uh, Richard or anyone else, as to how it was for them? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I, know, I know Richard very well, and I know Beth, and Beth... Um, Beth, who works for uh, Admiral Training at Galactic, she's been twice now. She's an extraordinary woman. And um, so she's great at, at expressing what it's like, you know, for people, for future for future astronauts, to what to expect. And that's part of her job, is to go up there and experience it and and um, make some corrections and, and changes to the, the situation. Uh, so it's perfect for, for us when we go, you know. Um, it's a mind-blowing experience. Um, mm. Some of the things that they told me about how the, it, it looks, br- the planet looks bright when you see film of it, but they all say to me, 
and I've, I've got to know Buzz Aldrin on Proud Son of Buzz is a friend of mine and, and they, they all say the same thing which is you've never seen brightness like it it's as if the earth has a light inside it, it it's the brightest thing you've ever seen it's extraordinary colour um, and the other thing is the silence of space and one of them told me that it's so silent that they can hear the oil going through the, the pipes in the machine it's, it's, wow. it's an unreal silence of space as we know, no one can hear you scream up there. We know that. But, um, <laughs> that is one of the more extraordinary things about it. There are so many kind of different elements that, that assault the senses from the weightlessness, obviously, to the view, to the, to the vacuum, to the lack of sound, you know, uh, mm. to the acceleration on the way up there and the reentry. There's so many different phases of assault on the, on the emotions and the, um, uh, and the senses that it's like nothing else, you know. It's um, I find it quite emotional when I see that. I see them make a test flight. I do find it just watching it quite an emotional thing. And uh, you mentioned Buzz Aldrin there. Um, he, mm. uh, of course, himself is a, is a veteran, but of course, um, one of the most famous astronauts uh, of all time. And it's quite a friend to have in your contacts book. Yeah, what a lovely man. What an incredible, incredible man. Uh, he was a Korean vet. Um, he flew F 86. For the aviation bods listening, he flew F-86 uh, Sabres in the Korean War, uh, and he got the Purple Heart. And uh, I, he came. I invited him to one of our foundation dues at Cywell in North Ants. He came along, and he met the Normandy veterans. I've got some lovely footage of Buzz Aldrin talking to Normandy veterans. And there were a couple of my friends who are, uh, um, hello Ron Smith, if you're listening, uh, who are Korean vets. So for Buzz to meet the Korean vets as well was an extraordinary moment. And then we took him um, aerobatic flying with the Blades, mm. Britain's best aviation team, British best aerobatic team. And we flew Buzz in the Blades aerobatically. Um, he couldn't resist and control the plane as well. So that was an extraordinary day. Buzz is a, he's a very special man. He's in his 90s now. Um, he's still bright as a button, you know. Yeah. Um, and he... And he um, he talks Mars. If you want to get Buzz's attention, talk about Mars. Buzz has got plans to get us to Mars. You know, the moon is a, the moon is merely a, um, a service station on the way to Mars for Buzz. Um, so obviously, Virgin Galactic for Buzz is a bit like me getting a black cab around London. It's uh, <laughs> kind of kind of a bit, a bit beneath him, really. But uh, he, he kind of he, he kind of does the bless you, Trev. Yeah, verbally pats me on the head when I talk about Galactic because you know it's. Uh, that's all right, but it ain't Mars. <laughs> <laughs> that's the big, uh, the big aim. No, it's um, yeah, absolutely yeah. Um, fantastic. And and I, I've I've been lucky enough to go up with the with the blades myself before, and I can imagine oh, it would have fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a um, an, an air show where it was done uh, press. They invited some of the press to go, and I I, I, I used to be in the air. Some proper G then. Oh yeah, yeah. It was crazy. I mean, I I used to be in the air cadets when I was younger, and um, so right. I've, I've done you know quite a bit of flying and and private pilot's oh, license great. and things like that. But um, but yeah, to go flying with them and just how close they all are, and you're just yes, looking out the window and you just think, blimey, yeah, we're going yeah. 300 miles an hour here, and uh, and it's yeah. and and then you know they're doing and it it's just amazing to be in there because obviously they are going through the same processes that the red arrows go through where they're counting down yes. to the maneuvers and all this kind of stuff and then we did this yeah. thing at the end where it was like a climb all the way up spin in and then there was a, a stall turn 
and then tail it went slide, and it, yeah. yeah, it was a tail slide and it tumbled down like I mean, I, I don't yeah, know yeah, what it, I don't. Yeah, I, you have done it. I don't know what it looked like, but it it's, <laughs> it certainly, yeah, it certainly felt like being in a washing machine. But um, yeah, was, that's right. Yeah, launch your back. That, fall, that was it. Falling back into yeah. your own smoke. Yeah, it's uh, launch your back. They call it. Yeah, that was this. Wow, you've done it. Yeah, excellent job. Yeah, no, and yeah, I've got the great. video somewhere because uh, they, they had the cameras. The pilots. They really are. Yeah, yeah, no, it was the incomplete, uh, incomplete video. Yeah, great. Yeah, so I've got it somewhere, nice. but um, uh, it was incredible. Oh, um, brilliant. So yeah, I knew you should, it. You should show that at Erskine; they'd love that. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to find. It. I don't know where it is, but uh, it was uh, it was quite incredible. And as I say you don't really have an appreciation of how it looks when you're in there when everything's just spinning round. But yeah. when when I've seen them yeah. performing elsewhere, you can see the moves they're doing. You think, yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm I think I've done that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you can imagine how proud and happy they were to have Buzz Aldrin sitting in the front seat. You know, that would have been incredible, yeah. It's very, it's very special. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. And um, planes are uh, playing a big part in your um, filmmaker role, which um, obviously we talked about at the start, yeah. that you were a ad man termed film man. And um, mm. Tell us about first of all the Lancaster movie. Um, what's um, I, I, I'm guessing that it involves yeah, a Lancaster, Lancaster, but uh, what's the story? It, 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 it does indeed. Lancaster is our follow-up film. It's a work in progress right now. Um, our follow-up to our documentary Spitfire of two years ago, and so we wanted to tell the story of Lancaster properly, um, warts and all. So we talk about Dresden, and we talk about Hamburg, and we talk about Coventry. And we tell the story properly, you know. The, the way I look at it is, um, I, I saw Spitfire was a was a was a, a machine with a soul, and Lancaster was a machine with seven souls, and that's fundamentally different. You know, go back to that point you made in earlier about teamwork and camaraderie and band of brothers. Really, that applies totally to Lancaster, whereas it didn't to Spitfire. Spitfire's kind of dueling heroes. Mm. Um, Lancaster a horrendous job at night bombing um, cities bombing factories an extraordinary story you know um, an awful one and one for all etc you know so I think we've got it I think we've got a very moving very honest piece of film and I can promise you everyone at, at Erskine that um, next year when the film's finished that I'll come up um, hopefully with some of the fellows and we'll, we'll do a big screening for you and I'll tell you the story of the film and, uh, and we'll show it and get as big a speakers as we can possibly install so you can hear the sound of four mighty Merlins you know um, we'll, we'll, we'll make a big night of it who knows maybe, maybe do two nights maybe we'll show Spitfire the one night and then we'll show Lancaster the next night how about that? Mm. Get five Merlins for your money. 